The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. So, good morning. Welcome to Berean Bible Church. Um, Let me tell you how this kind of happened and why I'm here. So, a few months ago, David taught uh, like a three-part series on eternal torment, hell, all of that stuff. And in that three-part series, he ran across a section where he mentioned a recent change of mind in his, on his part, where he uh, no longer really thought that the term Sheol or Sheol in the Bible was really uh, any longer in his mind a place for the departed souls of men, but that it was really just synonymous with death. Um, And connected to that, the idea of man having something to be separated from at death. So there is no separation of death. There's no place for that separated part to go. So he rejected the idea of man having a separable body or, I mean, body and soul or spirit, whatever term you wish to call that. Um, He declares that to be, you know, a Greek or Egyptian concept and not a Hebrew one. So in the weeks that followed... I had mentioned, you know, I kind of had mentioned that I was of a different viewpoint. And, of course, a while back I preached on this. And so I think he decided near the last minute to go on vacation. And he knows how it takes me a lot longer than just a couple weeks to prepare a message. So he's like, just preach that one you did before that kind of goes about the view that's different from mine. Tell him I gave you permission to disagree with me and to give your viewpoint which was just an easy way of saying, you've already got some prepared, so don't give me any words about needing time. Because you're normally doing it in my spare time. It does take me a lot longer than his weekly messages. So um, I only had a couple weeks' notice. So anyway, I put something together real quick. It's not a repeat of what I did before, but, um, but it does touch on that. So, um, so yeah, he, he declared, you know, he, in his message, he was t- talking about how this concept of something at, the, at death separating would, was more of a Greek or Egyptian context, not Hebrew. And therefore, if it's true that the ancient Hebrews did not believe in a separation of the body and soul or whatever you want to call that, then they obviously do not believe in a place for that to be going to after death or Sheol. There's, that, that's not a place. It is a, uh, you know, a just being dead. Now, for me, my current position is I still have a belief that the Hebrews did, in fact, believe in a separation of the body and some spiritual form. And that they did believe in a place where that departed portion would go to be contained prior to the resurrection. A place of the dead, known as Sheol. So, like I said, I, was, I had mentioned some of my ideas to him, and that's when, uh, you know, he said, yeah, go ahead and speak on it, because, you know, he's not 100% convinced of anything, and he's always looking for other views. So, here we are. This is what is considered one of those non-essentials. Obviously, he wouldn't have a lot of uh, flexibility when it comes to the essential issues of theology, but this is one of those things that you know people in circles argue about. Um, now, just to be clear, from the start, there were quite a few topics he dealt with in those three-part series that was mainly, again, on hell, the eternal, tor- eternal conscious torment, things along that line. And I'm not dealing with any of that except the sections that he he spoke on Sheol and the things about the physical body and the spiritual body of death. So I want to establish some terminology. Now all through the English translation, the Old Testament, the English translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, you see the word soul a lot. And I will admit, that is not a word that's being used in the sense that we modern Americans would think of as our spirit or soul leaving our body. That's not what that word was. And that's part of the argument. They're like, oh, they had no idea about the soul because that's not what that word means. So, um, even though that is how that is, it, it's still, in our mind, you know, is to, uh, is, is our, when we say soul, we, we actually think that. But a, a better possible term in Hebrew from the scriptures to refer to the dead in the state of Sheol would be the word shades, or refame, or refaim. As H. W. Wheeler, as H. Wheeler Robinson's classic work, The Religious Idea of the Old Testament, states, 
the dead are thus supposed to go on existing in some sense or another, even by the early thought of is even by the early thought of Israel. But it is an existence which no which has no attraction for the Israelites. It is not his soul that survives at all. The dead are called shades or refaim, not souls in the Old Testament. The subterranean place of their abiding is called Sheol, and in many particulars it is like the Greek Hades. So, let it be understood as we go on to this message throughout this message today that I am not referring to soul in the same way that the Old Testament refers to the word soul, but I am going to consistently try to use the term soul only because in our minds, in our modern minds, we understand that that's something that leaves the body. So anybody that listens to this, I don't want to get confused if I keep saying shades or some other word they're not familiar with. So I'm going to be saying soul doesn't mean soul from the Hebrew Bible in that sense. So stay with me, modern thinkers. Now, as I mentioned, um, and I can't believe it's really been this long, but six years ago today, not today, six years ago this month, I gave a message in 2013, pretty lengthy one actually, called He Descended Into Hell. It was dealing with the whole... Uh, Apostles' Creed and he descended to hell, blah, blah, blah. But it was, doc it was dealing with Sheol and all of that. It was probably one of my longest messages that I've given to date, <clears throat> except today's. Um, but, and I'm sure everybody here recalls everything from, I, I covered back then, right? Right? Yeah? No? Word for words. Dave was like, really going to beat this dead horse again? Anyway. <laughs> So I was dealing with the Hebrew concept of Sheol and all that. So, uh, and this was, you know, way back, back then. So it was kind of a single, single message there. So while I'm going to be touching on some of the same things today, I'm not going to be repeating the same message. So I do encourage you to go back and listen to that message. It has a lot more detail. Again, today's just going to be my current position, kind of responding to some of the things David said, but not really point-by-point -point type thing. And I'm open to correction too, so, you know, I just didn't find the messages that Dave had on this to be as convincing to sway me from where I currently stand on this view. Now, for the record, this is not a new discussion. This is not something that modern scholars are just dealing with. This has been debated back and forth for at least a century that I'm aware of, because that's as far back as I've been. You know, I've only been here a century. So. And that is, you know, whether a man is an anthropological dualism made up of two parts, body and soul, or whatever you want to call it, something that can separate, or is man more of a monistic entity, a single monistic entity, which would be the position that Dave was espousing in his message? Now, in my 2013 message, I went back and looked at myself, and I actually had this to say. This is a quote from me. There is much debate over whether the Hebrews had any understanding of the dual nature of man or of a possible separation of body and spirit. Did they believe the Sheol was just a line of the body, the lane of the body which contained the whole man into the grave? Many would say yes. And that's a position, like I said, that Dave was espousing there. And they proclaim that the idea of the spirit leaving the flesh to exist in some way outside of it is foreign to Hebrew understanding. I admit, I have done little study, this is me, I, have, I admit I've done little study on the topic, but believe that this is somewhat evident in the scriptures. That's what I spoke of in 2013 and went on to try to show how I believe it was somewhat evident. And that's what I'm doing today. I find that we believe that we find infant stages or infant views of this belief in early scripture and that it progressively becomes more clearly explained into throughout the Old Testament, into the Second Temple period and the Second Temple writings that we've spoken of quite often here and then into the New Testament and then beyond. Now that is not to say that there are times when these words are used as a synonym for death or the grave. But I believe it can be understood to mean much more at times. Here's just one of many books on the topic. A book called Body, Soul, and Life Everlasting, The Biblical Anthropology and the Monism-Dualism Debate by John Cooper. I've had the, This book is like 30-some years old. I've probably had it half that long. Um, so this, it tells you, the debate has been going on. And in here, he presents the debate that's been going on with all the philosophers and stuff. And um, it, it's really good stuff. And I really wish, if I would have tried to take this book and convert it to a message, it would have probably bored you all to death. Lots of philosophy, lots of strange things. But anyway, it's, it's a good source. I've used it for a lot of other messages, but I'm, I kind of wish I had a way to somehow make that a little more clear. But it's a lot of high-thinking stuff. Um, 
And it compares, it's basically comparing the argument from both sides to give you an idea of what's going on there. So the point is, it's a very deeply scholarly debate, but both sides making very strong cases. And so while Dave gave a bunch of quotes in his message in defense, of his, in the defense of his position, let it be known he was presenting the monism view of the debate and the people who believe that. So my, and my goal is not to just come up here and present the dualistic quotes from all the scholars. That would just be a back and forth, he said, she said type thing. I want to lay out what I see at present just in the scriptures and maybe, you know, just a simple looking at the scriptures and not really try to get into the scholarly debate side. But I do want to share a little intro from that book to give a little background on the debate details. Cooper tells us how anthropological dualism is the historically held position for most of church history. And it, is the, and it has only come into dispute, really, in the past century. The attack has been made by philosophers who wish to argue against the soul being able to exist apart from the body. And he points out this about the philosopher's belief. They have proposed alternative theories of human nature according to which the soul is really an aspect of the body or essentially correlated with the body. In neither case could the body's soul survive the death of the body. Science, scientists have determined belief in the soul's separability by uncovering numerous ways in which consciousness is dependent on and influenced by the brain. In addition, computerized robots, which read, think, speak, and answer questions, seem to suggest that the existence of a spiritual substance is wholly unnecessary for such higher mental functions to be carried out. The word soul may still refer to such capacities, but human souls are then the mental capabilities of a computer-like human brain and not separable entities. Now, this is not to say that the attack on this view is just from the atheistic scientists and philosophers, but you can see how that begins to kind of play in as they are dealing with this. The attack has also been made from philosophers and scientists who are sincere Christians. As it moves into the scholarly world, they started to espouse a view that was like uh, the biblical scholars have argued that ancient Hebrew and even New Testament writers did not operate with a dualistic view of human nature, but with a, monist, a monistic or holistic one. Historians of theology supported these con contentions by claiming that both dualistic anthropology and belief in disembodied souls are tenets of Plato's philosophy which were brought into Christian theology by the church fathers after the completion of the New Testament. Now, most every quote that Dave got up here and had given in his message was from the monistic side of the argument, and he quoted many references to make this point exactly, pointing basically to Plato and his ilk for being the influence on early church fathers like Augustine and all of them who made out these doctrines. But really the main thrust of Dave's discussion was more specifically focused on his views of hell and by showing how it developed later in church history due to the teachings of these early church fathers who were influenced by the Greeks regarding the immortality of the soul. In tracing that point out, he and others would say that it is a wrong view because prior to these Greek ideas, the Hebrews had no concept or belief in a separation of, of a soul after death. And one quote he provided was, we are influenced always more or less by the Greek Platonic idea that the body dies, yet the soul is immortal. Such an idea is utterly contrary to the Israelite consciousness and is nowhere found in the Old Testament. Now, honestly, I'm prone to agree with this quote in so much as the immortality of the soul is not taught in the Hebrew Scriptures per se. But the problem is there's two topics, really, I feel, that are being discussed here yet they're intertwined as inseparable by most people who discuss them. But we're going to talk about that in just a moment. Really, to dismiss a body-soul separation would mean that all people dying before the resurrection just simply cease to exist at death. This, of course, means the doctrine of the resurrection is likewise affected, and also we'll get into that in a moment. For me, I maintain that the soul was in existence, but held captive by and in a place called death. Sheol, the place of the dead. And that they are expecting to eventually, they were expecting to eventually be rescued and removed from that captivity by death, being resurrected out from among the dead ones, as 1 Corinthians 15 speaks of, and restored to union with Yahweh. And then as we are told in Revelation, that place of the dead, death itself, would, was thrown into the lake of fire, so as never to be a hindrance between man and Yahweh again. 
I see it as try, tying directly in with the promise from Christ in the book of John that said, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? To me, that's essentially a promise of a continued life after physical death. Though they die physically, they never die spiritually in the same manner as they did prior to Christ when the spiritual death took them and held them captive in Sheol. They never see death, as it is put in John 8. So they never see or experience the place, the captivity of death. For those who are not part of that group who believe, they do still take part. And they do not take part of that resurrection that allows them to avoid that, but they continue on in the existence, in their existence to see death. In Christ, death is defeated, done away with as a captive. Christ ascended and defeated that place. Those in Christ have put on immortality then, and at physical death, they, are, they bypass that spiritual place of existence called death. And the way I see it, without this scenario, if you take a monistic view of man, we have a whole man, single entity, dying and simply ceasing to exist in any form. And if that were the case, then wouldn't that mean that in order for, them, for there to be a resurrection, the whole man physically must be raised and restored fully to his former fleshly self? Dave states near the end of his third part that in 8070, at the spiritual judgment of both the gods and the men, the just and the unjust were resurrected. Now, he doesn't stop to explain exactly what that would look like in, this, in a monistic point of view, but would it make sense to assume it means that the whole single-part man was resurrected in the flesh and then somehow stood judgment while in the flesh in the spiritual realm? It makes sense if their spiritual existence was raised to stand judgment, but are we to understand that their physical bodies were reconstituted in AD 70 during a mass resurrection out of the graves and they stood judgment in the spiritual realm? If there's no part of a man that separates a bodily death, and if death is not a place of captivity in the spirit realm, and death is simply the physical life ending and being placed in the grave, then contrary to what John says, Christians do see death, right? They become, because everyone dies, that death. So they see death. And if that is the scenario, then it seems the only solution to a monistic Christian dying would be to have a physical body resurrected in a fleshly form and then changed to put on immortality, right? Of course, only the just would put on the immortality, the unjust would not. So again, does that mean their regular physical bodies stand judgment in the spiritual realm? And if man is this monistic one-part unit, an inseparable entity, then at what point in time do we Christians today put on immortality and get to go to heaven? Since we know currently that all of us here in our flesh will go down to the grave and see death. When is our fleshly resurrection to take place so that we can go to heaven? It seems this view inevitably leads us back to a belief in a yet future physical resurrection of body out of graves in some manner in the future, does it not? There is then one comment Dave said near the end of the message, of message three, that I really think is the crux of the whole struggle that's causing this attempt to embrace a different view. He says this, the understanding of man being mortal apart from faith in Christ, is where I get my view of Sheol being death. I think this is what all these issues and confusion hinges upon, the mortality-immortality issue. This is the intertwined issue, I think, is the root of the problem. Now, maybe it's just me seeing things way too simple, and I'll probably get a lot of backlash about it if so. But, and I could be off base, but I really have no issue saying man is mortal, yet dualistic. As man's soul, again, the word you used to put there, his soul is likewise mortal because it can have an end. Now, the majority of Dave's argument was focused against eternal conscious torment and a place called hell as is traditionally held, and not of which I take issues with any of that, those points. But directly connected to this view of hell and eternal torture is this traditional belief in the immortality of the soul. In looking back, this is really the main thrust of what Dave and others are speaking against. See, there is a direct connection because a soul that is immortal is a soul that can never cease to be. So if it never ceases, then there has to be a place for it to go and bang, hellfire burning forever theology is created. You see, the belief in an eternal place of torment 
requires there to be a belief in an eternal, never-ending soul. But just because there is a separation of body and soul, that does not, in my opinion at least, require a belief in the soul being immortal. Now maybe I'm being too technical with the terminology here, but I believe the Bible clearly teaches the soul can cease, thus it is not immortal. But I do not think that we are forced to believe that just because the soul is mortal, that at physical death it immediately has to cease. We are told God is the God of the living, not the dead, in reference to saints who have physically died long ago. So even after physical death, they exist in some fashion, it would appear. While it may be able to survive outside of the physical body, that does not require to be deemed immortal. If it has an eventual end point, it is not immortal, right? Or is this just terminology confusion on my part? I think the biblical testimony is of a continuing soul, but not a never-ending immortal one. Is it beyond the scope and power of Yahweh to be able to sustain a soul's existence after physical death, causing it to be under the captivity of death until such a time as he raises or judges it and either makes it immortal or makes it perish? Man was created by God to be with him. In his sin, he spiritually died the exact day he ate of the tree. He was then cast out of Yahweh's presence in the garden, and so even after death, his soul would not allow to be to go back into the presence of of God. Instead, he would be held captive by and in a place of death for his disobedience. Being restored to Yahweh was the desire, but the captivity of death was a reality due to sin. Christ came to redeem man from that consequence of sin, which was not physical death. He came to restore man back from his spiritual death into fellowship with Yahweh. The Platonist view was more along the lines of the soul being a more important part and thus separating and being immortal was an advantage. That was not really the Hebrew concept, though. Plato lays his view out like this. The soul, whose inseparable attitude is life, will never admit of life's opposite, death. Thus, the soul is shown to be immortal, and since immortal, indestructible. See, the crux of the argument, again, is based on the belief in the immortality an ever-living nature of the soul. But again, that's not required for our discussion. For them, the soul was considered eternal. Therefore, it has to be separated at death. To my view, the soul separates at death, but not because it's immortal. Plato went on to say that the separation of the soul from the body is what they call death. We believe there is such a thing as, as death, to be sure. And is this anything but the separation of the body and soul? Being dead is the attainment of this separation, when the soul exists in herself and separates from the body, and the body is parted from the soul. This is death. Death is merely the separation of the soul from the body. So while, the Greeks, while to the Greeks death was simply a separation of body and soul, usually leading to a better, higher existence for the soul, that was not the view exactly of the Hebrews. To the Hebrews, death more appeared to be the state of existence after the separation. They do not seem to imply it as immortality, but they do expect it to exist outside the body. While the immortality of the soul did take a foothold in the early church, it is not the same Hebrew concept of existence after death. So, let's move on with the task at hand, which in this case is simply to look at the scripture for evidence that would confirm a more dualistic viewpoint, whether by finding an expectation of existence after physical death or the description of a place of existence after physical death. Now, I'm not going to make any of the quote after quote after quote that I could from early church fathers on, of the first few hundred years of Christendom. That previous message had a lot of that. Since it's already been acknowledged that that's part of the problem, uh, they were already influenced, and so their views were Platonic in nature. Instead, I will kind of work backwards from the New Testament back. We're going to go straight to the New Testament scriptures to start. Now, if Christ and the apostles taught on these subject, subjects, it has to be authoritative. Plus, it will reveal a general understanding of the Hebrew doctrines in general. We already hinted at one of them in Revelation. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each of them, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. 
So here we see death and Hades being emptied of the dead who were in it. While it may just be some kind of symbolism for death in general, it seems kind of unnecessary to say it that way. It seems to rather appear to be a concept of a place containing dead ones, and they are being emptied, and then the container being destroyed. Now, I don't think this can really be just the grave, since, to my knowledge, the graves were not thrown into the lake of fire. Nor can it simply be physical death, since that continues to this day. And then there is the Luke 16 story of Lazarus and the rich man that we read at the beginning. After death, one goes to Abraham's bosom, one goes to the opposite side in torment. A chasm is mentioned as being between them, and water is mentioned there also. So what do we make of this? Is it true, or is it a parable? Is it revealing a real-life scenario after death? Don't know, don't care. But here's what I think we can get from it. Now, doubtfully, anyone would deny that the place described here is lifted right from the book of Enoch. I expounded it in great detail, in one, again, in my message six years ago. You have the separate chambers, the torment of the one, the blessing of the other, the chasm between them and the water in the midst of them, all of which come right from Enoch 22. Now, Enoch is not canon scripture, but I, in one of my previous conference lectures, and Dave in numerous sermons in the past, have made the case for the importance and influence of this and other Second Temple writings on New Testament writings and theology. The point being, these books were considered high enough, highly enough at the time that they were used and quoted as if to contain some truth, and that made its way into the canon of scriptures on certain topics, terms, and the conditions of many things. Now here, Christ tells a story while using details from the book of Enoch's description of Sheol. Dave said he was quoting this, not sanctioning it as true, but was using it against the Pharisees as an incorrect belief held by them. Now, I don't really find that to be the case at all. Some of the descriptive details mentioned may not have come directly from the Old, Testament, Old Covenant writers, but I believe the general belief of such a realm can be found in canon, and just additional details came from later non-canonical writings that expounded upon already established understandings and were probably well accepted by the people in the time. Now, while it may be true that the book of Enoch is not considered canon, that does not require us to believe that it is totally void of any spiritual truth. So that being the case, as we know, we've seen, you know, it's been quoted, so there's, you know, they did think of it highly somewhat in the New Testament era. So that being the case, who's to say that the descriptions of Sheol that they mentioned in this book are not necessarily true? After all, does not the conflict with this... After all, it does not conflict with descriptions of the place found throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. It just gives additional clarity. And then the fact that Christ quotes these descriptions in his story while nowhere saying that they are false, it just provides additional weight to the argument for them possibly being truth. Now, time and time again, when Christ ran across Pharisaical teachings of his time, he used to use language like, you have heard it said, blah, 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 but I say, blah, blah, blah. He's correcting them and other such corrective terminology that was condemning to their views. Yet here we get absolutely no indication that the geographical background of his story barred from Enoch is portraying a false view of Sheol and death. So I believe that Christ's use of it in his story, without in any way condemning it as erroneous, does in fact show that he sanctions in many ways at least some of the descriptive details of Sheol. Um, but for sure, he sanctions the traditional Hebrew concept of an afterlife existence in Sheol. What, we, what he was using against the Pharisees is the idea that their favored position versus where they will actually end up in judgment is what he was correcting them on. And so while the focus of the story may not be about the afterlife itself, the story is that much more powerful when told over a backdrop of commonly held truth that is never denounced as error by Christ or anyone else in Scripture. Now, a real quick thought I wanted to bring up here, though. Now, even if these views, as they would say, were originally from Egypt, is that supposed to be a reason that we should automatically reject it as if nothing true can come out of Egypt? Don't we hold that all these other nations were under a spiritual leader appointed by Yahweh to be their God? But does that mean that we're to assume that every single thing that these other gods taught the nations was purely error? 
If the separation of body and soul at death was a heavenly truth, we would expect many nations to hold to it in some form since it came from one Lord of them all, right? Along with that, there were a lot of Yahweh's covenant people associated with Egypt in the early days, as far back as Joseph and his clan, at least. And with the long history of interaction between the people of Yahweh and the Egyptians, this concept of a dualistic man may have been the common view for both people groups. So saying the concept is from Egypt does not make it necessarily a thoroughly rejected concept, I would think. But now back to the story. What does Christ say about these men in his, in his story? We have, to meet, we have this mean old rich man and the poor abused suffering Lazarus. Then what happens? We are told the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Now we can really just stop right there. That's really all we need. And we've never even touched upon anything that's relevant out of the book of Enoch. This is just as far as we need to go. Here we have Christ saying that after death, the person's existence goes somewhere. That's all we need for our case. He simply states that after physical death, there is still activity for the person. Now, I hold this to be the historical view of the ancient Hebrews and still was so in the usage of Christ. In speaking on the topic of resurrection, modern scholar N.T. Wright states this about the ancient Hebrew thought on the matter. Those who believed in resurrection believed also that the dead, who would be raised in the future but had not been yet, were alive somewhere, somehow in an interim state. So again, many scholars, modern scholars, scholars all over still hold to the traditional view that the ancient Hebrews, not just the more modern Jews influenced by the Greeks, uh, believed in an afterlife situation. And they believe so because of what they find in their Hebrew scriptures. Okay, so Christ tells us of a scenario of men whose soul left their body after death. Is that an isolated discussion? No, as we see in Matthew 10. David kind of touched on that too, but only by assuming it was wrong to read it in a dualistic view. The dualistic view is there because it, has, it was the common view from Scripture. He says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul soul and body in hell. We have two things to take note of, the dualistic view defined and the mortality of the soul established. Again, I really think almost every argument that Dave gave was really about the pagan sources. We're really striking more out at the Egyptian and Greek interpretation of the soul being immortal. And because of that, required an everlasting place of existence. Because again, the topic was eternal conscious torment in hell. Now, I stand behind what I said earlier. The soul doesn't have to be immortal to be sustained to exist for a length of time. Yahweh established a soul to go on until such time as it could be judged. That is not the pagan teaching of immortality at all. So we have to really get past that. Immortality is not involved in the Hebrew concept of dualism. As mentioned before, it is acknowledged by most that the modern Jews believed in a dualistic view. But we're still looking for Christ to condemn this view or correct them. Instead, we find that the view of a separation yet we find the view of a separation yet possible again, and again not condemned by error, as error by Christ. And they were talking about those things. Jesus Himself stood among them and said to them, "Peace to you." But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And He said to them, "Why are you troubled? And why do you doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is myself. Touch me and see." For the spirit, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I, that I have. So how could they think he was a spirit if they had no concept of the human spirit living outside of the body? If there's not a spirit or soul that separates, then Christ simply could have just said, "Hey, stupid head! Of course I'm not a spirit. What are you thinking? There are no such things. Man is a single monistic being." Another one worth briefly considering is from James. For as a body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. All right, now sure, I can hear people saying now, hey, wait a minute, the word spirit here is the word for breath, and all he's saying is, if you stop breathing, you die. Now every time I hear this discussion, and others like it, I kind of wonder how sure someone is that, that while that word has a true, wooden, literal meaning for breath or life force, was it always literally understood as simply breath every time the people wrote it? What if breath was just the same word they used throughout points of history and fully understood as, as what we would call a soul? Do we know with 100% certainty 
that such a concept is totally impossible? Now I admit I'm not a scholar who has done any research on this, but still just can't help to wonder how sure we are that we understood exactly what they were thinking when they said what they said, just from a literal meaning for it. It is used again to speak of a miracle that Jesus did for the daughter of Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead, but taking her by his hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given to her to eat. So even if the spirit is simply breath, the breath was gone, and it returned in a miraculous way. Did he simply perform CPR on her, give her mouth to mouth, to get it going again? Or was the breath of life in some way her personal breath of life, her personal spirit that had gone and was now brought back? Elijah did something similar in 1 Kings, and he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow for whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let the child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him again and he revived. The nefesh had left the boy and the prophet called it back. Now I know nefesh is just an, a, a word that's usually used again with a literal meaning of the description of life or the life force. It describes living creatures. But as in all languages, words can have nuances and usages that stray from such a strict literal meaning and that is what I think we may see at times like this. As in these type of instances, it seems that the life previously belonging to these children, that that same life was returned to them. It was something special to them. It had existed outside the body and was able to be called back into the body. That appears to be the plain understanding that we would are presented here with these verses. So just like Jesus brought the little girl's spirit back, the spirit of the boy was brought back to his body. Do we find other examples where the spirit, or the pneuma in the New Testament, the breath of life, is used to be understood by something other than the whole man? What about Hebrews 12? But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Are we to understand the use of spirits in the heavenly realm with the other spiritual creatures there, with Yahweh, to simply mean fleshly men or somehow just their breath was there? This same breath that was brought back to the girl, the same breath that, causes, that James said causes the body to die if it leaves, and that the apostles somehow taught, thought Jesus was, this breath, this life, is now a separate entity standing in the heavenly council. Now, I don't get it. Everywhere we are looking, we're finding a spirit or soul terminology that it seems is more than just a life energy that cannot exist or be separated from the body. And while most of these have been New Testament passages, none of them have been stated to be false or a wrong understanding. And what of Paul, who declares, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. If man is a single, inseparable entity, then how can Paul declare these people to have been taken to a heavenly realm and maybe had been done so out of their body? Was Paul just confused and offering some false view in Scripture? And then what about the testimony of Christ in 1 Peter? For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. I guess Peter is under the false, same false understanding as Paul that, that this can be a separation. I guess you could say Jesus is a totally different type of person because we know that he pre-existed his becoming man. I guess that would mean he's not quite like normal man at all since he does have a spirit that obviously can, did, and does exist outside the body. Or does that instead mean he is made up of more like us with a body and soul that can separate? He died in the flesh and was made alive in the spirit in order to go down to where other spirits are. Could the other spirits he went to be formerly fleshly human spirits? Maybe. 
we sure have seen the spirits of men spoken of. We've sure seen other spirits have been spoken of like that. The belief in a body and soul separation is more clearly the understood theology of the New Testament. For nowhere are we instructed that it is a wrong line of thinking, not even by Jesus. Let's look quickly at what the ancient Hebrews thought of life after death and this land of Sheol as a destination for the souls of men. First, let's examine the usage and descriptions given for Sheol. Sheol is derived from the Saxon helan, to cover, hence the covering of the invisible place. Philip Johnson, in his work entitled Shades of Sheol, Shades of Sheol, Death in the Afterlife in the Old Testament, this is a really good book too, that's the wrong phone number now, says this about the word Sheol. The most important Hebrew term for the underworld is clearly Sheol for several reasons. It is the most frequent, occurring 66 times. It always occurs without the definite article, the, which implies it to be a proper name, and it always means the realm of the dead located deep in the earth, unlike other terms which can mean both pit and underworld. Obviously, the Hebrew term Sheol was, has different nuances in different contexts, but these are nuances of the single basic concept of the underworld. Views to the contrary cannot be sustained. So, in its use, it's always a reference to the underworld realm of the dead. So, let's look at a few. Per the Montist view, Montist view that Dave was espousing, every time the word is used, it usually means just simply the grave, being dead and would have no idea of any existence in mind. King David asked the Lord to save his soul, for it is of no use to the Lord for him to be dead, for no praise can come out of that place. For in death there is no remembrance of you in Sheol, who will give you praise? What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Now, keep in mind, there was a word that they had for grave. By grave, meaning the literal place or tomb where they put the body to rest. In those instances, it is not Sheol being spoken of. For instance, and Jacob set up a pillar over her grave. It is the pillar of Rachel's grave, which is there to this day. So here we have someone dead and buried in a tomb, and it's not referred to as Sheol. Yet just a couple chapters later, we have someone speaking of death, but the grave they go to is not the same. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Now, he's not just speaking of a tomb or a grave. He speaks in language of an expectation. He expects to first go down. Sheol is referred to as a place under the ground. He is going down, and he expects to go down to be with his son. Now, if he's simply saying he is going to be dead just like his son, it just seems like an elaborate, unnecessary way of saying it. And it kind of begs the question for me, why would they come up with the word that is not literal, but is used supposedly in such a manner in such an overly dramatic, metaphoric, or symbolically expressed way when they could simply use the word death or grave as a literal place. Why such an elaborate description as we shall see for a place which some say is equivalent to just being buried in a grave? Let's look at what they said and expect and understood about this place that they expected to go. They describe it as the place of the wicked and the good. Now, I'm not going to read all those verses. Um, for time's sakes, but it just basically talks about the destination of men, good and bad, and, and mentions that. Um, we're going to go on and look at other descriptions of Sheol. It's described as deep, which seems like an odd description for just being dead and in the grave. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Sheol is dark, which seems an odd attribute of, place, of a place that no one ever actually experiences a sea that is dark. But before I go, and I shall not return to the land of darkness and deep shadow, the land of gloom like thick darkness, like deep shadow without any order, where light is as thick as darkness. Sheol has bars and gates. Will it go down to the bars of Sheol? Shall we descend together into the dust? The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head as the roots of the mountains. 
I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. I said in the middle of my days I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. And as mentioned before, it is a downward direction. But if the Lord creates something new and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them and they go down alive into Sheol, then you still know, shall know that these men have despised the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, on the day the cedar went down to Sheol, I made the nations quake at the sound of its fall when I cast it down to Sheol. They also went down to Sheol with it to those who were slain by the sword. It is understood to be a place where the other dead congregate or assemble together. One who wanders from the way of good sense will rest in the assembly of the dead. But we also get this impression that those that are not to- that those there are not totally inactive or in a total sleep-like existence. For they, the shades, as I mentioned they were called before, are said to at times be alerted and stirred up. We are told in Isaiah and Ezekiel, Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you, all who were leaders of the earth. It raises from their thrones all who were kings of the nations. All of them will answer and say to you, you too have become as weak as us, as we You have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, and the sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your cover. The mighty chiefs shall speak of them with their helpers out of the midst of Sheol. They have come down, they lie still, the uncircumcised, slain by the sword. And we find when we get to the New Testament, the idea is continued in the word Hades, and we find little to no change from how it is described in the Old Testament. It is mentioned as being a prison with locks and bars. For Christ, we already read, Christ also uh, suffered for your sins, uh, being put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. It is still considered going down beneath the earth. And you, Capernaum, will be exalted. Will you be exalted to heaven? you will be brought down to Hades. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And of course, as mentioned, the Luke 16 parable story lines up nicely with the view of Sheol too. And then we understand that the Hebrew concept of the light areas of Sheol are known also as paradise, So that lines up perfectly with what Christ told the thief on the cross. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, this, in my opinion, should clearly be a troubled passage for the modest view. For how could Jesus promise the thief anything that was going to happen that day if both of them were simply going to cease existing on that day? But wait, the modest have an answer for that. Since in the Greek there is no punctuation, they simply say, let's move to comma. So now the verse says, and he said to them, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. That way Jesus is simply saying those words to the thief on the cross on that day, but he's not promising something to actually happen on that day. Now I checked every, pretty much every translation that I had in my Bible software, and I, I didn't find one of them that placed a comma there. It was always the other way. So may, is it the, the interpreter's decision where to place it, or is there something in the text, that, in the grammar, that leads the, all translators to seem to do, the, do so? The way, the, the way it is in the translations, though it does make sense in light of all that we have seen to be the Hebrew concept of Sheol throughout the Bible and paradise in the Hebrew concept's view. And as we're coming to a close, I want to look at two key things that I feel make a clear case for a dualistic, some form of a dualistic existence from the Hebrew Scriptures. Now to me, these reveal the ancient Hebrews' understanding of a separation of something after death and its surviving in a place called Sheol. The first one is that the Hebrews had very strict laws against contacting the dead and departing. 
There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortune or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving him out from before you. This type of prohibition really makes absolutely no sense, to me at least, if there was no concept of the dead existing anywhere in continuation in some place. After all, if the dead were just dead and gone, then doesn't having a law against seeking to make contact with them make no sense logically? If it isn't possible, why forbid it? This should reveal to us that the act is indeed possible to be accomplished, but it is forbidden. And if it is possible, then that means that there has to be something that exists after death that can indeed be contacted. Leviticus likewise forbids it, saying, do not turn to mediums or necromancers, do not seek them out, and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Now, you look this up in the Old, Common, Old Testament commentaries by Kyle and Delich, and they say this on the verse. This thought prepares the way for the warning against turning to familiar spirits or seeking after wizards. And then that little word there, which I'm not going to say, it denotes a departed spirit who was called up to make disclosures with regard to the future, hence a familiar spirit. This is the meaning in Isaiah 29.4 as well as here and in Leviticus 26 as is evident from Leviticus 20.27. 20, now, in looking at those references, the two that he gives there from Leviticus, both of them basically just require, no, don't do it or we're going to stone you. It's just, you know, laws. But he references Isaiah 29.4, which he basically states that this is the backdrop on how these familiar spirits work. And so when you look at that, he said, they, the verse says, And you will be brought low, and from the earth you shall speak, and from the dust your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost, and from the dust your speech shall whisper. So... This is judgment against Jerusalem being spoken of, as, uh, and it speaks of them going down, and it also hints at them being able to speak like a ghost from the ground, essentially, and that this is basically the backdrop for the idea of what a familiar spirit is and what the medium is able to make contact with when, of those in such a state. And with all of this evidence we've discussed, this, of course, leads us to what I consider to be the most revealing of stories, to me, this is the most clear and positive proof that reveal both of my points as to the belief of the ancient Hebrews. They believed that some part existed after death and that it was contained somewhere downward, known as Sheol. And so if you haven't guessed it already, I'm speaking of Samuel, Saul, and the medium, or as some say, the witch at Endor. If it was against the law to contact the dead. We've seen that. Saul knew this, yet he was desperate, and he secretly sought to reach out to Samuel the prophet. So he went secretly to the medium to contact the dead. His actions show that he believed that what he was doing, while against the law, was still indeed possible. This clearly reveals that at that time, the Hebrews would have likewise believed it to be a possibility because they believed in an after-death existence. He set out to have it done, knowing it could be done, and not just taking a chance or being unsure that it might succeed. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring to you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God, or Elohim, coming out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed on his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? If Samuel was simply dead, if Samuel was simply turned, I'm sorry, if, yes, who am I talking about here? Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I got it right. For some reason, for a second there, I confused the names. If Samuel was simply dead and turned to dust, and if the Hebrews had no concept of an existence after death, then this is the most out-of-place, anti-scriptural story in the whole of Scripture. 
Some commentators try to escape it by saying, oh, it wasn't Samuel, it was just a demon impersonating him. That to me is just a desperate attempt to go against what is plainly the case. Plus, nowhere in the body of Scripture are we ever given a hint that this was not, in fact, a true contact with Samuel. We could also throw in there the fact that at the transfiguration of Jesus, we have the existence and appearance of Moses and Elijah, showing them to have somehow be in existence in spirit form, in some fashion at least. For you cannot have Elijah, Moses, and Samuel all making guest appearances from the spiritual realm and still deny the existence after death of some piece of the person within the spiritual realm. And here we see Saul coming up, Samuel, which of course would be the direction if Sheol was down. So in summary, I am seeing that from Old to New Testaments, and even including the intertestamental second, intertestamental second Temple period writings, that we find a consistent line of thought. While it does grow and expand in clarity throughout the times, it is nonetheless existent throughout from start to finish. The line of thought is they believed in the continued existence after physical death. Not necessarily the immortality of the soul view of the Greeks, but it was, and that book goes into a lot of detail as to what else it could be, but I didn't want to get into that deep stuff. But they do believe in a continued existence after physical death where they were separated from God in darkness, trapped forever, it seemed, by the place called and under the power of a personified death. And while the words may not be as clearly stated or perceived in the Hebrew Scriptures when it comes to nefesh and other such things regarding a clear dualistic terminology, the concept is clearly identified as understood by their afterlife language elsewhere, like in these stories. In the early parts of Scripture, Sheol was a place of hopelessness where no one returned from. But as time went on, that hopelessness began to change, and they began to have a glimmer of hope and promise from other writings. The blessed hope of a future resurrection from out of this state of death. That resurrection hope be then began to grow and morph in its understanding of how it would look, which we find even more clearly pronounced in the works of Christ. So, like many things, these doctrines began as a small light and they grow in clarity over time as more and more details were revealed to God's people. But it seems clear that the ancients believed and that Christ believed and confirmed that there was an existence after death in a place somewhere in a spiritual realm. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can have discussions. We thank you that we are able to challenge ourselves and our minds and that we are able to just discuss these things and, uh, and, and come to conclusions about your words that though we continue to have those conclusions change, we just thank you so much, Lord, for your word and the wisdom and, and the things that we can discover about you and, and your people. And we just pray, Lord, that you would help us to always honor you in all that we do. And we thank you so much for the blessings of all that you've given us. Amen. All right, because as you see here, there's no slide that says questions because either A, I'm not allowing them, or B, I forgot to put the slide in. Which one do you think it is? Dang. All right, anybody got any questions? Questions, questions? No? Good. All right. Let's, let's sing. <laughs> Can you repeat that? <clears throat> All right, I know it was a lot, and it was probably a lot of crazy dry material in some part, but that's what you get when you throw me a couple weeks to make a message. <laughs> Give me more time, it might be a little more detailed. And anyway. All right, so no, no questions? No? Okay. Speaking to thinking of today. The dead people? Were you, speaking of, were you speaking to those of us that are in Christ, or were you talking about those that do not know? Or was it a mixture? In of what them? part? Basically, everything I was talking about today was those prior to Christ. Okay. okay. This is the Hebrew concept. prior to. So prior to Christ, the Hebrews believe you die and you go to this place. Yes. The intermediate state. Yes. Christ came and got rid of that. Gotcha. So it's not talking to us. Okay. This is all pre, the pre-first century. So. Mm. So the question was whether or not did the Hebrews believe that there was something that separated, and if so, did it go somewhere? But you know, the points that uh, Dave was raising questions that the, that the Monist view raises questions about is they didn't believe there was a separation, therefore there was no place to go. They just died and then they had to be resurrected. So, um, 
So yeah, that was kind of it. So yeah, it's not us. The part about us was, well, when we die, what if in that view, that has the word connected to the flesh only, then when we die, we have to be fleshly resurrected. So it seems like that kind of takes us back to a, what is the modern traditional view of resurrection today, which is not really credible to I think so. Um, Stan first. Is uh, that where you think they get uh, from the Roman Catholics purgatory? Yes, I think. There's a book out there, but I always wanted to study the Roman Catholic because there's a book I have on my wet list for like eh, six or seven years now. Just can't buy, get myself to buy the defense of, of purgatory. But I'd like to know what their defense is because I really think a lot of the verses they probably base it on is this. Um, and again, the traditional church these days, I found this out, as I mentioned in my previous message six years ago, it's not the common view that everybody believes. Um, so even in the Reformed churches, which you know, not not prayers, just Reformed you know, churches, um, not all of them believe that, but then I've got books by some that do, so it's kind of a mixed thing. As far as when you start talking intermediate state, purgatory, that comes to mind. Oh, that's Roman Catholic. Or soul sleep. We don't believe in soul sleep. Okay, so and there's a lot of issues there. Um, so yeah, it's 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 an issue when you start talking about that. But uh, but it's a view that for the most part, like I say, David had always been online with until recently. So he said, "Well, go ahead, and give your view." So it's again, it's a debated topic. It's not something that everybody's going to agree on. So that would be something that Martin Luther would probably. I think Martin Luther would probably be against <laughs> it, probably because it was too Roman Catholic. Yeah. But I'm not sure. Most of the reformers kind of dismissed it. I've read a lot of them, like John Gill and Calvin and all them, and they speak out against this view as being too, you know, Romanist. So, and the same thing with the Apostles' Creed. You know, he died and descended to hell. Well, he didn't go anywhere. That was just a suffer he start, he had on the cross. Well, that's not the concept that the Hebrews would have thought of. It would have been he, you know, stepped down, went to, to the place of death, and conquered it. So, and that was kind of what my message was about six years ago. Was just about the Apostles' Creed. Basically, uh, so yours boils down to uh, separation of body and soul doesn't necessitate immortality. Right, and that's the part that I think I probably would that get the most backlash on because it exists outside of the body and still have an ending point later on. Right, that's what I was saying. Is it too? Is it too? Am I being too literal with the means? Immortality means never ending. If it ends, does it make it immortal? David's issue and other people that respond to this say, if it leaves the body, it's immortal. I don't think, I don't see that because it doesn't necessitate being immortal to separate. This book, which is, the, I, I started looking into it, I've read pieces of this, but I'd already pretty much finished the message. I went back and read it, and they started, they started explaining aspects of what leaves. In the first chapter, he says, if this is the definition of these views, dualism and monism, then yes, nothing in the Old Testament teaches a dualism, if this is the description. So he states, and Dave would love that first section, and all the monists would love it. Then further in the book, he says, what is it that does necessitate the separation, and what are we talking about? And that's when it starts getting into personalities, and not soul, but it's some other aspect of a life force that is there. So I didn't want to get into all that, and plus it was too late, I already had most of the message. But there are other philosophical and strange ideas of how you can express something leading. And it says, you know, the Hebrew concept necessitates the view that something left, but you just can't necessarily think of it as the soul that Plato and them were discussing. So. And, yes. um, and the one quote where you were talking about Sheol with the uh, definite article, yeah. or lack thereof, um, that was, was a quote from you, like I said. Was it, were you saying that it's uh, not there, which makes it a proper noun? That's what, that was a quote from him, that's what he was saying, something okay. along that line, yeah. So he's that, saying it is a proper noun. Yeah, that came from uh, the Shades of Sheol, which um, it's very, very detailed in all the different views of what they thought about that stuff. And, uh, but yeah, that was one of his definitions for the word. So. Okay. If it's wrong, I blame him. I yeah, I just want to clarify that if he was saying it was a proper noun because of the lack of the definite article. Right. Please. Anybody else? I wouldn't even know how to answer anything. <laughs> All right, um, well, let's stand. I'm, I got one more video we're going to play. Y'all want to do that or should we just close? Is it too late? Y'all tired? <laughs> you want to sing? Sing. No? Can we sing? Over here we got no?
Yes. 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 Close back. Five and five over here. Close over here. Close over here. Five over here. Eight yes. Eight yes. Sing it is. Okay. Let's stand. We're going to do another video. That's going to all be depending on whether this video works. I don't know earlier, one of them had to download first, even though it's not supposed to do that. All right, I guess we're not going to sing because it's not going to fire up. All right, fine, let's just pray. Watch it. No, you watch. It's going to fire up. As soon as I start praying, it's going to come. Oh, see that? All right. I held you all long enough. Let's just pray. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you again for your word. We just pray that you would bless us. We uh, can just continue to pray for the disaster and horribleness of what happened in our area recently and for the families involved. And we just continue to pray for those people involved in that. We do thank you so much, Lord, for the love you show and for the blessings we have. But we do pray for those who are having these issues. We thank you so much for this and pray that you would just bless this day. Amen.